500 years. <laughs> Hello, everyone. It's Jeff Till, and it's January 19th, 2016, on the 500years.org podcast. Today, we're doing a mini-cast of sorts. I wanted to catch up with some of the themes that I had, both on the Obligation podcast and the Star Wars podcast. And then while this is a mini-cast, this will actually be quite long because I'm going to repost the Isaac Morehouse uh, podcast that I appeared on just released today. So it'll still be a full hour and a half long. First, there was one thing about Star Wars that I forgot to mention, and we had a birthday party over at our house last week, and it was brought to my attention that now that Star Wars is owned by Disney, that Princess Leia might be a Disney princess who would hang out with uh, Jasmine and Cinderella and Rapunzel, etc., on the little girls' toy sets and teacups and backpacks and stuff. And I want to first say that Star, uh, Princess Leia is definitely not a Disney princess now. Star Wars is a boys' movie, and that's it. Also, I wanted to, going back to the 9-11 theme, I forgot to mention that the Death Star, when exploded, uh, certainly had non-combatants working on it. In fact, probably most of the people uh, would have been engineers, there would have been cafeteria staff, there would have been, as we know in Episode 7, they have sanitation staff, and they would have had people who had to do the laundry to uh, clean and iron those green uniforms. Uh, they would have had to have some kind of food production. There would have been all sorts of people uh, on that ship who were completely not combatants and would have been collateral damage. So take that for whatever it's worth. In my Obligation and Duty podcast, I went through all sorts of different things that had to do with being free and removing things that you didn't like from your life, uh, you know, or removing them so that you didn't have to deal with them anymore, and creating new ways of living that lets you be free. Again, instead of the uh, angry libertarian who wants to end the Fed, you can become the peaceful, productive freedom seeker who does things in their own life to be more free. And right after I did that, I ended up taking a trip to Maine in December, uh, to visit my in-laws, and the one thing I noticed about, another thing I noticed about South Carolina versus up north is a system of clothing. Uh, the, the basic system of clothing down here, if you're a man, is you own, you have a, a pair of shorts that you typically wear over your underwear, and then a rotating set of t-shirts that you wear, and then occasionally, besides those three items, uh, you have a pair of flip-flops that you put on if you are going outside and or have to go to a store or something. But even if you're just walking outside, you may not get those flip-flops out. So it's basically a three- to four-piece clothing system that makes things very easy. Uh, up in Maine, the clothing system got wildly more complex as you started to add full pants, socks, shoes, a sweatshirt, sometimes a winter hat, a jacket, a pair of gloves, possibly even a scarf, and so all of a sudden, this whole, uh, the, you know, this whole process of getting dressed and maintaining a wardrobe, even for just a few days, 
became hugely complex. And this is, of course, you hear stories about like Albert Einstein or these other people who don't want to have any of their mental energy taken getting dressed, uh, having seven or eight of the exact same outfits so that they just uh, wake up and put the same thing on. Well, this is sort of the same concept, except it's even simpler because you're literally just, you know, taking your shorts uh, off before you go to bed and then putting them back on uh, once you awake. And it really just couldn't get cleaner or simpler. Now, I've heard uh, some podcasts recently with Jeffrey Tucker, and I absolutely love uh, listening to him. But one of the things that always uh, sort of not gets under my skin, but something I can't really appreciate uh, is all of the effort to wear extensive clothing, like removable collars and cufflinks and the signature bow tie. And to be perfectly honest, uh, fussing over that sounds like absolute hell to me. So anyway, that's one of the things that I just wanted to talk about for two seconds. I know I mentioned my underwear. Who thought I would go there? But I did. Uh, the next thing about uh, I wanted to go into on obligation, and I talked about how sort of binge vacation, uh, where you or even uh, binge visiting. Uh, wasn't preferable, that you'd rather have them spread out over time instead of just having this one clump of six or seven days that's your vacation and that you got to shove everything into and then just, you know, hope, hope to God that it doesn't go wrong somehow. Uh, I noticed that Christmas and gift giving had a very similar type of feel to it. And I noticed we, we had the dilemma of having to uh, bring an enormous amount of presents or ship an enormous amount of presents for our kids uh, all so that they could have that Christmas morning experience where they each get, you know, more, more new merchandise than they possibly could know what to do with. And we had to do it up in Maine because my mother-in-law insisted that she wanted to have that traditional Christmas experience of a tree, you know, loaded with presents and wrapping paper everywhere and the kids getting a bunch of stuff. But what it sort of forced us to do uh, was to come up with a lot of very arbitrary sort of gift decisions that, you know, we're sort of second guessing, you know, would the child like this or would they not? Uh, to the point where Huck still now has a Lego set from Christmas 2014 that he has yet to unwrap. Uh, and he has a small inventory of toys still with the, that thin plastic wrap uh, around them because uh, he has not yet cut them out. And I've got to be thinking that there's got to be a better way than to just have this one arbitrary day where they get a bunch of presents. Uh, why can't that be just like vacation, how you want to have live somewhere where there's sort of perpetual vacation? Why not have a similar gift thing where you get smaller bursts of it throughout the year, still have the happiness, but then also you don't have to have uh, the present selection be so arbitrary. The children can participate more. And... Uh, and you're not just sort of overloading yourself with a bunch of new things all in one day. Anyway, I don't have it all figured out, but that was one thing that came to mind during the Christmas time. Another thing that came to mind uh, was uh, a dilemma that I used to have a long time ago in which I was working at Pricewaterhouse or one of the other big firms that I used to work for, and you're only given two to three weeks of vacation per year uh, if you're even allowed to take it as in the case with Price Waterhouse. And usually, since there was such a scarcity of vacation, we would always feel obligated to go visit my mother or my dad uh, or my wife's uh, parents 
uh, during that time because uh, we, we lived a thousand miles away and it just sort of like when else would we get to visit uh, and so all the vacation time that you had was it was pretty much uh, burnt doing that unless you you know resisted the obligation to go see the parents and you know did another vacation where then you uh, either insisted on going somewhere where you could be a tourist like you go to France and uh, go see castles and churches and stuff uh, or you go to Florida and or the Bahamas and you try to you know sit on the beach and drink you know Bahama Mamas the whole time the one thing that I always wanted to do because uh, I used to have a great hobby of painting fine art painting and a pretty big hobby of music composition and production which you can go see it at tasmlab.com uh, what I dearly and desperately wanted was to take some of those weeks and spend time uh, just creating. You know, go to the recording studio, uh, go to the painting studio, and having that luxury of time that I didn't have during my regular weeks uh, of slaving away at work to actually sit and write music uh, or produce art. And now it would be different. Maybe it would be to do podcasting or to write something or... or uh, uh, build a piece of software, but all, all the, uh, it's not good to take, in my opinion, to have to also binge do creative time, uh, especially when you don't even have many opportunities to do it. To be really free is that you need to have the opportunities for creative time uh, constantly and persistently and not have it be this special thing that's uh, regimented to the scraps left over from uh, your, your career of bill paying. My last point here on obligation that I wanted to make is I can't tell if the world is in a constant horrific struggle against unseen and or very well seen and horrible evils or if everything just is sort of getting kind of nice and better. Uh, because if I go like to the news, um, I have Huffington Post open right now. Uh, uh, nationalism is tearing Europe apart. I'm reading some headlines here. Uh, Clinton makes her case, it's me or the GOP. The world's richest 62 people have as much wealth as the poorest, 3.5 billion. Scholastic pulls book about George Washington's slaves after outcry. Group of Americans kidnapped from interpreter's home, Iraq official says. Hunger in Syria. Clinton celebrates Confederate flags removal at MLK Day uh, ceremony. Three big social issues MLK fought for outside of racial equality, the lies and half-truths of the fourth democratic debate. World's number one tennis player was offered 200K to throw a match. Um, the Oscars are so white that Spike Lee refuses to attend. Rubio tries to siphon off Cruz's evangelical support in Iowa. You know, it just goes on and on with all this terrible news. Like, it's all absolutely terrible, uh, except they have, I think they have one article here on Amy Schumer's dress. But, so that's that's the experience we get at the news, is this constant sort of political, you know, barrage of terrorism and awfulness and how people are so poor and how the wrong people are going to get into office. And yet, when I go outside... And I take a hour walk around my neighborhood 
all I seem to see is nice houses and clean yards and palm trees and water features and clouds. And then even if I get in my car and go around town, I notice that there's new businesses uh, popping up. There's new construction, uh, both commercial and people's homes. Uh, the quality of food and consumer goods that we have available to us just seems to get better. If I look down at my phone, uh, I'm amazed that I have the the totality of published human knowledge in my pocket. And day after day, the real experience of living seems to be getting better. But the in almost a Fabian socialist type of way of constant pressure, the story we get is that the world is awful. And so perhaps I'm just, uh, I'm sort of stuck in my bubble of sorts, and maybe I don't get to see all the awfulness. But as part of being personally free, you almost need to create a bubble. And sometimes we think about this in terms of, you know, are we setting an example for others to see uh, by the way we treat our children and the way we live our lives? Or are we creating a bubble for ourselves where we only experience uh, a sort of le le leisurely sense of beauty and peace and non-obligation. And both can be true and working, but I think the, the latter is probably, in a personal way, the, the most effective way to have sort of a beautiful and peaceful and free life. And so even if I just limit myself to walking around my neighborhood here in Parker's Landing, as it's known, uh, all, all I pretty much get to experience is this sort of freedom and beauty. And as soon as I turn off this web browser and stop seeing the what looks like a tense and horrifying world, then I'm going to feel better all around. So the second part of this podcast is called Everything Isaac. Isaac M. Morehouse is my very good friend. Uh, he's also my neighbor to a degree. Uh, he's an entrepreneur, he's an author, he is a podcaster, he is a father of three kids roughly the same age as my kids, he's a husband, uh, he's an unschooler, and he's a free market, liberty and peace and prosperity kind of radical, uh, and I met him after I moved here to South Carolina. So anyways, I want to run two pieces, which will take up most of the podcast uh, the first is why he moved down to South Carolina. How has moving to Charleston made your life better? You know, there are so many ways that it has, so many ways. Um, and not, not just because like, oh, Charleston is objectively this wonderful place to live. Because Charleston is a great place for my wife and I to live. Given our preferences and our interests, it really fits who we are, the stage at life we're at, the things that we want really, really well. And it was almost like this realization, this, this epiphany that we don't have to wait for permission. Like we can give ourselves permission to live in a place that has all the features we want. You don't have to wait for vacation to be in a place that's wonderful and beautiful and that you love. Oh, isn't this weather nice? I wish we had this back home. Then pick a place that has weather that you want every day. Oh man, the beach is wonderful. Ah, oh, sad vacations coming to an end. Then move to a place that has a beach right there. 
they're all over. There's all kinds of ways you can make this work. People think that they can't, but if you if you make that a must and say, look, I have to live in a place that I like, that I'm happy with, there is almost always a way to make that work. You don't need to wait for vacation. You don't need to wait for permission. So anyway, almost every day, and I'm conscious of it every, we've been here almost five years, and I'm literally tangibly conscious of my high happiness level every day with where we live. What are the things I like most? The really, really small things. So for example, there are things you don't realize until you leave a place that you're not in love with. You can tolerate, humans can tolerate a lot. You can be living in some attic, whatever, and not really notice it. Like I'm like that with offices. I mean, my office can be a broom closet. I don't care. But then when I move to one that's nice and has like a nice fresh, you know, flow to it, I'm like, wow, I'm just so much happier. What, what happened? It's because I don't always realize it until after, but the little things. So when we lived in DC, for example, we didn't like it then. But now that we've moved away, I'm like, how did we even stomach it? Uh, or when we lived in Lansing, Michigan, like, how did we even handle it? Because I didn't know what I was missing. Just to clarify here, Isaac's going to begin talking about his experience in D.C. and Lansing. And we'll talk about South Carolina in a bit. When you drive to get groceries, everything you drive past is ugly and dirty and cramped and crowded and worn down and slow. When you get there, the parking lot is ugly and dirty and cramped. When you go in to Target, if your kids have to go to the bathroom, the bathroom is ugly and dirty and the doors are torn off and it's locked and it's busy and it's disgusting. Things cost a little more. Like all the little small parts of the experience when you drive home, the things that you drive past are ugly and gross. The tiniest things. There's this little stretch of road that I drive on here in Charleston to get from any pretty much anywhere I'm going to my house from my little neighborhood complex. Just this little road, and it goes over a marsh on both sides. And there's sort of like woods and trees and houses, and then there's just a little break where there's this little area of marsh and a creek and a couple docks and a boat, and the tide will be high or low. I don't think about it most of the time. That tiny little interval, which is just like in the background of my day-to-day life, it's not a part of it. It's not like I'm hiking or swimming in that creek. Like, oh, this creek is so great. We use it all the time. I don't do anything with it. I just drive by it. That background of my day-to-day activities is beautiful and peaceful. And what that does to set the stage for your happiness is unbelievable. You all of a sudden realize it's like, you know, it's like if you sat down at a desk every day and you had like a big, giant, hideous thing like protruding from the wall, blocking half your vision all day long and you just worked with it. You'd be like totally you know, wouldn't even notice it because it always been there. And then all of a sudden it's removed and there's like a window with a pretty view out on a meadow. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I'm just better. My quality of life is so much better. It's like that. You don't notice the spaces around you, the environment in which you dwell. I think it has a huge impact. And I'm, and I'm somebody who's, I can tolerate a lot but it has a huge impact. The, the number of days of sunshine, for example, I always like, why am I grumpy lately? If it's been like four or five days without a lot of sun, I don't know. I don't know. Notice why, but I just start to be like less happy. So these really small things, when we go to the grocery store here, the parking lot is beautiful. There's little, you know, there's little raised curved areas with like palm trees and it's just, it's nice. Things are just nice and pretty and peaceful. Like you drive on a normal average road with nothing fancy about it and you've got these huge live oaks sweeping over it with Spanish moss hanging down. That's just normal. That's just in the background of day-to-day life. And that kind of thing, that setting is just 
something that it's so it's never like in your face it's not like wow the thing i love about it is the restaurants are amazing because it's this very tangible experience those things are great but it's these little small things that you don't even notice when you're experiencing them um unless you've been someplace much worse like the smell of the air you know it's got like sort of a briny nice like rich earthy smell to it man it's awesome it's awesome the fact that i can look at pine trees in my backyard when i look out my window i see trees just little things those things have been amazing. Um, so yes, the the daily activities uh, and, and the surroundings. Okay, so that was Isaac Morehouse's uh, take on why moving to Charleston or South Carolina has been so beneficial to his happiness. Now, what was weird is that I met Isaac about 10 minutes after moving here, and it became quickly clear that we uh, were sort of World War II twins, uh, of kind of unmatched proportions that you wouldn't normally find in a friendship. And uh, just because we were both into the unschooling, into the entrepreneurship, or hobbyist musicians, we liked uh, football, we we, uh, we had almost all the same, you know, the same books and, and uh, sort of philosophical and political backgrounds. Uh, we had children the same age. We had uh, wives that stayed at home. Who, who also uh, agreed with our worldviews. And so the, the two things I took out of that is, one is finding something like that isn't just like lucky, but it's almost like a once-in-a-lifetime uh, type of thing to find is a friend that, that's that closely aligned with everything that you want to do. The other thing that I thought was interesting was um, that when you move somewhere across country, as Isaac was talking about moving from either Lansing or, or DC down to here. Uh, and we did the same thing. We moved from Boston down to here is that you often worry about the friends that you're going to lose. And sometimes you don't think about the possibility that the friends you might pick up, uh, might even be better. Um, you might find, you know, people who, who are even more aligned with, uh, with your worldview or your, your values, et cetera. The other thing is that Isaac, at one point, and his wife, Heather, did the exact same analysis uh, that we did, uh, although they did it uh, probably, we actually did it two years before we moved, uh, so that would have been four years ago. Isaac mentioned five years ago. So somehow, he did the analysis of where to live and came up uh, with this Charleston era era area of South Carolina. And then a year later, totally independently, my wife and I did the exact same analysis. And that put me, put us moving about a mile and a half away from Isaac's house, which seems kind of incredible. It almost seems uh, as if there was a bit of magic or some extraordinary amount of luck. But I wonder if you just take people who are so similar and give them the same problem Perhaps it is very likely that they come up with the exact same answer. The last thing I want to say about Isaac before we move on to the the full hour Isaac Morehouse and Jeff Till podcast is that he's pretty much the only person I talk to uh, anymore besides my children and my wife. Uh, so with that said, every podcast that I do, and I mention Isaac, you have to keep in mind that pretty much all of my ideas I'm just taking from him to start with. So... Without further ado, uh, here is the Isaac Morehouse podcast featuring Jeff Till. Enjoy.
This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Today's episode is sponsored by FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education, and Praxis, discoverpraxis.com. Who should go to FEE? Who should check out FEE? Well, anyone who likes ideas should go to FEE.org because there's all kinds of articles, uh, a few of them penned by yours truly from time to time, articles, resources, books, but the real, real life-changing component are the in-person events. And if you're between the ages of 14 and 26, you're curious about the world, you're curious to, to get out and engage with other people who like ideas and want to learn, and you wonder what economics is all about, you wanna go beyond just boring charts and graphs and really understand how economic thinking can make you a better entrepreneur, a better creative person, a better person in general, someone who understands and can navigate the world more effectively. Check out fee.org seminars, fill out an application, let them know you heard about it here on the podcast. Who should check out Praxis? Again, if you're between the ages of 18 and 25 and you want to get out of the classroom and get into the real world, Praxis gives you the opportunity to spend a year working with entrepreneurs, helping them build their businesses, learning how to be an entrepreneur by working with them in the real world. We destroy the separation between education and work, the real world and the classroom. It's all bullcrap engage the world. You're working. You're also doing a bunch of self-guided. You have coaches and, and advisors that are working with you, but they're self-created. You're creating your own goals, challenges, monthly personal development projects. You're building a website, creating an online brand. It is the fastest way to go from where you are now to where you want to be, the kind of life you want to live. Our goal is to help you live free, to help you become fully alive. And we want to give you the skills confidence, experience, knowledge, and network to do that in just one year for a net cost of zero. What you earn during the program covers what you pay. Discoverpraxis.com. Check it out. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I am joined by my good friend, Jeff Till. And Jeff is an author, an entrepreneur, a podcaster, and an unschooled dad. And above all that, he's just a very, very interesting guy. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Isaac. Thank you so much for that lovely introduction. It's it's almost a little weird doing this over Skype, considering we live, you know, a, <laughs> a couple <laughs> miles apart, but it, it works easier with the technology I have. So uh, instead of being in the same room as we as we could be and often are, um, Jeff, if you want to check him out, his website is 500 yearsorg And it's a really, really cool website. You can find blog posts there, his book, uh, Rise Above School. You can find um, links to, to purchase that. You can find his podcast there, which is phenomenal. And we'll talk about all that stuff in just a little bit. But first, I got to ask you, uh, 500 years, what is the goal of the site and where did the name come from? The the name came from uh, my friend, Javi, who is a Actually, he didn't make it up. I made it up. But it's uh, he's a cosmologist who's studying the uh, nature of gravity waves. 
and he has he's in the LIGO project, which is a I think it's a three mile tube buried underground, kept in a constant vacuum that has mirrors um, hanging and they shoot a laser at it 16,000 times per second, hoping that it'll wiggle uh, because a pulsar or a neutron star uh, exploded, you know, 10,000 years ago. And so when I asked him, what's the practical use for this technology, when you finally figure out how gravity works, uh, when, when will there be a use? And he said, well, probably about 500 years. And I thought, wow, that's kind of a neat idea. And then I started thinking of other problems that have intergenerational timeframes, uh, such as you know building a voluntary society, uh, eliminating school, things like that. Um, and that's where I thought, 500 years, that sounds cool. Let's, yeah. let's talk about problems that have a 500-year timescale. Well, that, that's a really, um, that's a, I love the concept and I love sort of the, the humbling reminder that some of the things we're working on now, uh, as you mentioned, okay, well, how can I be a better parent or let my kids have more freedom and grow up to be sort of peaceful, autonomous, um, you know, human beings that it's going to take time for those effects to sort of, it's, it's to eventually we have an entirely, let's say de-schooled, uh, unschooled society after many generations. It's a very cool concept. It's humbling, but it's actually kind of surprising with someone who has sort of libertarian, um, a libertarian bent to them with a, with an unabashed comfort with self-interest and saying, I want to act on behalf Mm -hmm. of my own enlightened self-interest because it almost, it tends to imply this sort of like hippy dippy, like think about, think about the future, think about some some group of individuals that don't yet exist and defer your own satisfaction for some unknown future. How do you sort of square that desire to, um, you know, satisfy your own enlightened self-interest with the desire to do something for generations not yet born? Well, I'm not sure this is the answer to the question, but I'm, I'm actually not too concerned with the people 500 years from now. Um, because I'm I'm wildly obsessed with my own um, my own obligations, my own personal freedom, uh, how my children are treated, uh, how how we act with each other, how we act, we we act with friends, um, how we, we become virtuous in our lives, how we obtain comfort, how we obtain wealth in the very short term. Uh, but I think doing those things and practicing them is probably the path to helping the people 500 years from now, mm. because we're going to be demonstrating. Um, what what happy unschooled, uh, unconstrained uh, people who have obligations that they choose, uh, people who are free. It's only by living the lifestyle and serving ourselves now that we'll actually demonstrate what can happen for the future. Yeah, you know, there's a there's a something in there that I can really relate to that is by by saying, hey, I'm working on problems that are going to, you know, the, the, the ultimate result is going to be 500 years from now that it is, it, it is very satisfying in a way it, it, it sort of gives you, there's a psychological benefit by taking the pressure off. You don't suddenly feel this need to like go out there and evangelize and beat everyone over the head and convince them that your arguments are right. When you realize the work you're doing is something on a much longer time horizon. And as you said, if if you can live free and your kids can live free, the example they will set, that's going to have a more profound impact than the number of people you can sort of like browbeat into agreeing intellectually with your arguments. It, it kind of reminds yeah. me of um, one of my favorite essays by Albert J. Nock is called Isaiah's Job. And he talks about 
you know, every prophet's job. It's not to preach to the masses. They're preaching to the masses, but the masses aren't really listening and they're not going to change. The message is really for the remnant and they may never see them or meet them, but those are the people who need it. That's who it's for. And I've never found that discouraging. I've always found that encouraging because the majority of stuff, you know, that you do, the majority of people don't notice it, right? Like they don't notice mm -hmm. it. It's not transforming them. But if you remind yourself, I'm working on something. This is, this is almost like a clandestine, you know, underground resistance movement. Like we're doing something subversive that has an impact on a small number of influential people that, that sort of builds over time. Is that, does that sort of, I don't know. Do, do you understand yeah, I, what I'm getting I, at? Yeah. Well, I think it's, um, what's interesting is when, when I meet up with you, uh, we, we can have the conversations that sort of extend, you know, the practice and the theory further in pretty unique ways since we, we have pretty broad agreement and both have deep knowledge. Uh, the effect on my children is going to be that they're going to uh, grow up with this being their state of nature, which is kind of really interesting because I had to spend a long time uh, both sort of de-schooling, de-parenting, uh, de-norming, I don't know exactly what the word is, but to get myself out of, you know, into this new mode. Now, pe random people I meet, like my neighbors, um, from anything from telling them that my wife doesn't work, that I only work part-time, uh, that my kids don't go to school, um, you know, they just think I'm, you know, they think it's wholesale craziness for the most part. It, you know, it doesn't even make sense. They, they don't even know the right questions to ask. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, like the script is, they look at their script and there's nothing on there. Like, okay, <laughs> is your kid in swim club? What grade are they in? And you can't answer any of those. And it's like, where do I go? Yeah, no, exactly right. So I don't, I don't know if that's like, that provides in, in my fantasy world, I'd love to think that they then turn around, go home and go, Oh, I wish I didn't have to go to work. And I <laughs> Let wish me go home and think about my life. <laughs> and I wish I didn't, you know, didn't sign up for all this garbage, you know, to occupy my time. And I wish I didn't delegate the raising of my kids, you know, to the government. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so let's, well, let's start with your, let's get into your origin. Let's get into your own, your sort of own, um, growing up and, and schooling experience and what sort of led you to where you are now. So you grew up, uh, going to school, public school, like most children. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you remember when you were young in your childhood, pre pre-college? Do you remember like, what was the educational experience like for you? And you, and were you aware of shortcomings at the time? Yeah, I think I was, I didn't, I didn't ever question no one presented the opportunity to say like, should you drop out or should you homeschool or should you, is this the right thing to do? It was, it was totally automatic. Um, I went, uh, I, I didn't enjoy any, uh, academics. Uh, I never did a stitch of homework. Um, I have my academic GPA leaving high school was a, uh, was a D minus. And, um, <laughs> luckily I was, is I that, was, uh, is that passing? Can you, can you graduate with that? Yeah, well, that, that's my academics. That's my my math, math and science and English. Okay. Um, I was also uh, tremendously creative, so I was loaded up on art classes, the theater classes, music classes, stuff like that, and was was very productive. I um, I, I actually used to go to school for about ten hours a day because be, between um, getting there early to meet friends and then being in the theater club and stuff like that. And then I would work uh, late into the night on either my artwork or my music. So I, I produced a lot. I was very good at taking tests. So it, that sort of offset not doing homework. Hmm. Um, but I knew, I knew all the math I was learning. Uh, I wasn't retaining. Uh, I, I never wanted to read any of the books 
that they recommended, even though I ended up reading all of those books in my, my 20s when I did decide uh, I was interested in reading them. Hmm. Um, and didn't like many of my teachers. So at, at the same time, my dad instilled uh, a certain amount of panic in me. Uh, he really wanted me to go to college to become an, an accountant. <laughs> Whereas I didn't want to go to college initially, and then the only way I, I ended up was by taking the easiest degree I possibly could, which was acting and watercolor painting. <laughs> so, But he was he was totally terrified, of course, that I was going to turn into a uh, jobless loser um, and being, you know, which, which sounds reasonable because uh, acting and watercolor painting aren't notoriously lucrative <laughs> careers. Um, so, so when you made the decision to go to college, did you see it as I want to assess where I want to go in life and assess what I might need to do to get there? College seems like the, the necessary best step, or was it just, did you even see it as a choice? No, it wasn't. Um, I, I was, I was only 17 when I graduated and I was trying to convince my mother that I would join a rock band in Detroit and do that for a couple of years. And she said, they're not even going to take you seriously. You know, they're not even going to let you into the nightclub. Um, which is probably true. Um, and so she she started applying to colleges for me. So she wrote all my essays and, um, <laughs> and filled out the application. So your mom I, got accepted to college. Yeah, yeah pretty much. Um, and Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo. Uh, which oddly at, enough is also uh, where I went to school many years later. Very odd coincidence. Yeah, that was pretty much the only place that would take me. So, like, my U of M and MSU applications <laughs> failed. Um, and then I I didn't – I don't know if I did it purposely, but I chose that major um, knowing that would be the only thing that would help me show up hmm. is if it was sort of fun and easy. So what was a college experience like? You were uh, – I know you were in a lot of different bands. You were performing a lot of music, doing a lot of art. So that social side of it, it sounds like it was a fun experience for you from what I know. Um, but the experience as a whole, what do you feel like you gained and what do you feel like maybe you could have gained more if you sort of knew what you were doing or, or had the wisdom that you now have? Yeah, so again, I was I – was, um... I was pretty productive outside of the confines of the school experience itself, the college experience. So um, we released uh, two albums during that time. I was with uh, two bands. We were, we were pretty notorious and uh, you know had a good draw around town. There was a huge scene back then in Kalamazoo. There's about 117 bands in a 70,000 person town. <laughs> um, but since it was still kind of a small town, uh, all of the low life, uh, hung out together. So it would integrate into whether it was like you were a poet or you were a communist or you were in a heavy metal band or you were in a punk band or you could have been a drug dealer. Um, in some parts you may have been part of the, the, the homosexual scene. Um, you know, anyone who was sort of, to, you know, this on this alternative thing sort of intermingled with each other. Um, there was a ton of partying, uh, lots of booze, lots of drugs. Um, so, and then a lot of creation as well, a lot of competition to, to create music and to create art. So that, that part of it was, was, was very enjoyable. The, the whole, uh, going to college thing, you know, was essentially for the first two years, you know, just an excuse for my parents to cover my, my living expenses. <laughs> and then I started working first, uh, at a pornography store called the Velvet Touch, uh, where I was manager. And then later at Kinko's copy shop. 
which is now I think uh, the FedEx store. Kinko's FedEx, yeah. Uh, oh man, Kinko's. And the Kinko's, the Kinko's was actually a, a pretty neat move because it was right during my junior and senior year, or my my second, uh, my my fourth and fifth year, um, where the drug use and stuff like that was getting intense with all my friends. Um, but I, I actually scored the late shift on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. I'd work from eight at night to late in the morning, which took me out of the party scene uh, during those key those key times. Hmm. Uh, so I was my only my only friend out of maybe uh, seriously 50, 50, 70, 100 kids who finished college reasonably on time, hmm. uh, mostly because I was out out of the party scene those nights. Wow. And then it it also gave me this weird skill set. Uh, it, making copies was actually considered sort of a skill back then. Oh man, Kinko's was like a legit professional, you know, it was an important yeah. part of the the world of commerce. Yeah. So making copies and um we had computers there. We had the first uh, Windows 3.1 so uh what, what year would this have been? 1992, 1993. Okay. Yep. Um you know still no internet at this point. Uh AOL online. You get the uh, CDs Earth online. In the mail. Yeah. Yeah, it would, would come probably about three years later. Okay. And that actually gave me uh, a great tool set to find a real job, you know, to put my, my dad's anxiety at rest. Mm. And so as soon as I've, are we done with school? Can I? Yeah, so no, I was actually, I was just going to ask you that next. So when you graduated, were you, were you like, crap, now what do I do? What, what came next? Yeah. So I, I was, I was pretty, um, I was a bit scared. I was getting, I was getting a lot of pressure from my parents. Uh, I, I didn't want to become a meat packer or or a cereal manufacturer, which was sort of the prevailing uh, professions in Kalamazoo at the time. <laughs> um, so I knew I, I knew I had to move, and so and I needed to go to an art center. So it was on my list. I was too chicken to go to New York City, but was thinking San Francisco or Boston. San Francisco is a little bit too far away. So I made the plan uh, to move to Boston. Uh, try to recruit some friends to go with me. I did find one guy uh, who ended up, um, we ended up driving his pickup truck out a couple months later. Then I just started prepping, thinking, well, I know I want to be an artist. I want to, you know, be a musician and a painter. And so I have to be in the center. And I also knew that I had to work full time to support myself. So I began to think, like, if I'm going to get a full time job, I'll get one in the professional sphere where I get to sit in an office and wear a tie and make more money than do with what typically artists do, which is, you know, go to work at the coffee shop mm. or uh, the car wash or something like that. So I spent the the summer honing my typing skills, which used to be a job back then, <laughs> uh, word processing. Uh, maybe maybe today, helps. what the equivalent today might be learning, you know, JavaScript or something, I suppose. Yeah, WordPress maybe. Yeah. Um, so... And that actually turned out to be a pretty uh, decent idea because I, I started getting the Boston paper newspaper back then. Job listings were in the paper. <laughs> uh, and the job the job section of the Boston paper was bigger than the entire Detroit Free Press. Wow. And even though it was during a recession. Even even when they the Free Press covered all the fires and house burnings? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the murder section. Crime section. Um, uh, yeah, so, and then... Um, how how just, long did it take you to learn to learn to type? Um, and is that something you learned in school, or was this totally on your own? I did learn in school, uh, but I practiced... Um, you needed to submit your word count, your words per minute, yep. your WPM. So I had to get that up. And I was just trying to gear myself to an entry-level job 
which is what I ended up getting. I started in the mailroom of a technology research company. And they That's really like didn't... the classic story, you know, yeah. starting in the mailroom, eventually taking over the company. So the um, the this was personal technology research. They pretty much ignored all of my education. They didn't care about my watercolor painting degree, <laughs> but they did like my mad copy skills. Coming hey, this guy, look at his degree. He can decorate the mailroom uh, really well with paintings. <laughs> And so I was there for 11 months. I campaigned to get a computer in the mailroom, which they didn't really understand why. But I began learning, teaching myself uh, database programming mm-hmm. and eventually automated part of the product there at the company well enough to eliminate four full-time jobs. And was this all a means to making enough money so that you could continue to do your music? Yeah, absolutely. So during this time, I also uh, began my most ambitious a music project called Thing and Nothing, uh, which is an hour-long, four-person sort of cyber opera, hmm. uh, all done with MIDI, but simulates um, essentially uh, an orchestra. Hmm. And it's an, it's an actual storyline with uh, four characters. And it, it over the course between 93 and 95, I, I wrote it. And it's it's quite, a, it's people, it's been called uh, devil music, that gives you a headache, but it's <laughs> enormously complex. It's the most complex thing I've ever composed. So as you're pouring yourself into your music and you're, and you're working as a way to support that, I'm curious what motivated you to not just go and clock in, but to do things like get the computer, automate the system, make improvements for the company. It doesn't seem like you would have had to do that in order to just keep supporting yourself to make your music. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I did. I did want to, um, you know, sort of beat down that that expectation that my dad had for me. Yeah. The 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 work ethic, the obligation to be productive and be a real worker and to be taken seriously in adult society. So I did always intend to move up. And even if that meant that, you know, ten years later I was a junior executive, uh, making you know much more than the average American and still trying to pursue an artist's career. Hmm. Uh, it turns out to be, I don't think it's a good strategy in hindsight. You probably really, if you want to be an artist, you probably have to go all in hmm. uh, and live live very poorly instead of giving yourself this sort of release valve that all of a sudden, because eventually the I, I left that job 11 months later because they wouldn't hire, they, they only offered me a $2,000 raise. So I was going to go from 20,000 to 22 and I really wanted 28. So I then, uh, through the temp network, got placed at AT Carney, which is a very prestigious, still is, uh, management consulting firm, where then I started doing graphics. And there I totally uh, started working 80 and 90 hours a week uh, to the point where they would even like rent a hotel room next to the office so that I could only get catnaps. Wow. So basically your music was killed by that. Or was it? Did you still have time to be pursuing I, music? Yeah. No, I still, even through then, I, I then wrote my second most ambitious album, uh, The Essential Cubicle Nose Picker, which is another opera of sorts. It's a like sort of a piano and violin uh, piece that sort of has sort of both classical and pop leanings with two characters um, and, a, and a pretty pretty intense uh, vocal script, what do you call it, lyrics. And I don't, I don't know how I did it. And then I still, at the same time, I was at A.T. Carney just completely feasting on the materials they've given me uh, so much that they 
teams would consulting teams would would schedule their projects around coming to my office uh, to to use my services, and then the the larger corporate entity would even fly me to give seminars to to other graphic graphic groups. Did you enjoy the work? I did because I was uh, taken again being taken very seriously. I felt like I didn't have permission to partake in the the Boston corporate environment. Yeah, and all of a sudden they were accepting me. And that became even more intense three years later when a group splintered off and went to another very prestigious firm, PricewaterHouse, now PricewaterhouseCoopers, and they said, "Well, let's come, you, let's come along, you know, come along, Jeff. We want you part, as part of the team." And I'm just like, "Well, make me a consultant." And they were like, "Well, the requirements are a, a MBA from Harvard." And I said, "Well, you know, I can do the work." And they they finally took a chance on me, and wow. brought me on as a strategy consultant. Um, this would have been in the late '90s. And so that was that was with Price Waterhouse. Then you were a consultant yeah. for them. And how long were you in that role? Uh, I'm gonna say three three years, four years. And what was kind of amazing is they they did manage to sidestep my abysmal background. <laughs> so the guy who, who who seven years ago had you know hair down to his ass uh, and an earring and eyeliner on. Um, singing punk rock, you yeah, know, here, his art degree. Here are the albums I made, my watercolor degree <laughs> and management experience at the Velvet Touch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a typical Price Waterhouse, you know, consultant. Yeah. And then, so now, then all of a sudden now I'm wearing a suit. I'm, I'm flying in an airplane going to meet uh, very senior executives to close multi-million dollar deals. Was that uh, stressful? Yeah, but again, I was I was really just impressed that I was ex- accepted, that I had permission to participate at, at that high of a level. And were you uh, continuing on with the music at that time as well? Yeah, I, that then, I'm trying to think. No, that was pretty much a break for music because I had to travel full time, okay. so I would have to commute from Boston to either Oregon, L.A. And was Florida, that a, was that a deliberate Jersey. choice you made? Like I'm I'm gonna be done with the music for a while, or did it just sort of happen? Like, did you were you sad about that? Oh, it just it just had to happen because the the workload, you know, you can't bring your uh, your drum set, and your, <laughs> your keyboard to the hotel room across country, and there was just no time. You pretty much the the schedule is uh, 7:30 in the morning till usually about 11 or midnight, uh, full time working. Your your meals are catered so that uh, you don't leave your desk. And you come back Friday at midnight and just try to medicate yourself with alcohol until uh, you have to leave again on Monday. Okay, so when uh, there's there's a couple things that are the case now, and you can tell me about how these happen. So now you have kids. I want to know when when the kids came along, and now you run your own company, very very successful company. Uh, you're doing very very well. Um, how did that transition happen from being uh, a consultant there at Price Waterhouse to launching your own firm, um, you had kids, and then we'll get in a minute to your move from Boston down to South Carolina as well. But tell me about, tell me about that transition and what happened to your sort of your musical and artistic pursuits in the process. Sure. The, my break from Price Waterhouse came, uh, I was on a, a, a long project with uh, Disney where I was commuting from Boston to, to L.A., and this was following a long project where I was commuting to Oregon, mm-hmm. where I had to, uh, I was so busy, like I had to propose to my wife over the phone. Um, <laughs> she had a brother-in-law commit suicide, so I actually had to one time fly out to Oregon on Monday, fly back to Boston on Tuesday, fly back out to Oregon on a Wednesday, 
Wow. And then back again. You know, it's a twelve hour trip each time. Oh. Anyway, after this Disney project, I was um, beginning to like break down and cry on the move the flight home home. And they had this movie called Polly the Parrot, which was sort of like a kid's film. But every time I'd watch it, I'd just start like, you know, I couldn't control myself emotionally. So I just knew I had to get out. But they have this mythology at Bricewaterhouse um, where they say you're never going to be anywhere this good again. You know, you're never going to be this respected again. Uh, You're never going to have this much support. You're never going to have these kind of opportunities. And they very much sort of indoctrinate you to that idea. Hmm. So I was was very nervous, you know, like sort of I was – going to be selling the cow for the magic beans type uh, scenario yeah, yeah. if I quit. Um, I did quit, I, and then I went to, uh, I spent three years at some small startup marketing agencies uh, during my interview with the first one. I uh, I said, I, I just don't want to work hard, was my story during the interview. <laughs> and I, I, I still, the CEO of that, that company, I still work for today, um, and he likes to bring it up that, when I finally explained what, what not working hard was, you know, I said, I'll, I'll still come in for, you know, 50 to 60 hours, but I just can't live on the plane anymore. They, and then I realized I wasn't so helpless and that price waterhouse wasn't the only thing in the whole world. Uh, like they told me, it turned out that, um, not only was I capable to work at another company, uh, everywhere else was like 10 times easier. Wow. It was, you know, it was like playing in the NFL and then, you know, being told you have to go play for the high school team. So it's like in that, when you're in that bubble, that environment, do you, do you just think that it has this effect where you believe the statuses and the, okay, well, if you get this next thing, then you'll be junior partner, then you'll be this. And you do you like start to overinflate the importance that has in the real world because you're so consumed by that the bubble while you're there. I mean, what motivates people if they can have it better at other places, what motivates them to stay in that environment? Well, I think I think that mythology is is a huge part of it. They people do know that the, the partners can make a lot of money, like maybe seven hundred thousand or a million dollars a year. The they'll have this tremendous amount of power. They'll be these these advisors to the sort of masters of the universe, meaning you know the the senior executives at the at the large Fortune five hundred companies. And they also convince themselves that the, the content of the work, you know, is something you're never going to find anywhere. So no one ever tells you that there's um, you can be a big stupid real estate agent or a used car dealer and make more money than that Price Waterhouse partner. Hmm. Um, but even if even if they did tell you that, they would say that it wasn't intellectually uh, sophisticated enough to to be a real career. Hmm. So I think I think that's why. And probably for most people, if if you're on that track where you you actually did go get your undergrad in accounting and then got your MBA. You're, you're going to be dumped right from academia right into that consulting world and not really know anything different. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you worked for a couple of small firms and then you eventually just started doing independent contracting work, launched your own company doing consulting work for a lot of a lot of the same clients you had been working for before. Is that correct? Yeah. I, the um, One of the companies had sent me home for six months. Uh to work without having any work to do, but they continued to pay me. <laughs> uh, they eventually, they eventually told me to come back to work, and I'm like, eh, no thanks. And so I joined another company, which did the exact same thing, except I was supporting a woman in Japan. So I only had to work with her for about 15 minutes a day, because we would talk at the end of the day and at the beginning of the day. Mm-hmm. And the work that she gave me was very easy. So I had come become 
became accustomed to working at home and by myself. And they eventually, that project ended, and the company called and said, well, you have to come back to work now. And I just said, well, no, thank you. I, <laughs> I didn't even go in to quit. I just on the phone said, I'm not, I'm not coming in. I guess you can stop paying me now. <laughs> and But, but what luck would have it, I uh, did have a, uh, an assignment from my first client for my own business, and that was sort of the birth of it. And I had no no trouble uh, getting business whatsoever because everyone who I had previously worked with at every single job was still eager to work with me. And so now you have a company, you have what four or five employees, and yeah, we're a, we're a fearsome sixum now. Okay, we're six people, six people big. Um, we've probably shipped close to 350 invoices. We are constantly busy. Uh, we're looking to grow, and it's been 12 years now. Wow. wow. And, you know, we've, I've had to put payroll on my Visa card a couple times, but otherwise we've been operationally just fine. Now, my recent focus has been about two years ago, I decided to do a big pivot where I was going to be a new version of myself. And that was going to be, I was going to reduce my work week, hopefully down to either half time or quarter time. I was going to move to summer warm and I was going to take my kids out of school. And that was about two years ago. I made that shift and it seemed to have worked out. And what prompted, actually, let me ask you one question first before I get to that. Cause that's a, that's a big radical shift. And that's, that's something really, um, I want to, I want to dig into a little bit, but you know, where you are now, you've got a very successful company, employees, et cetera. Is that something you ever envision? I mean, what do you think like 16 year old, 20 year old Jeff, like, is this something you would have thought? Yeah, I want to, I want to own my own company. I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to, would that have ever occurred to you? I don't, I don't think so. The, although I, I sort of blame the, um, there's, there's so little career exposure to children. They basically know there's, you know, there's cowboy doctor, teacher, <laughs> And they, then all, all they know all, the things that you really like astronaut, cowboy, you know, yeah. professional athlete, the things that they're probably not going to be. <laughs> yeah. And then there's this one guy called a uh, businessman, you know, who wears a tie and carries a briefcase, <laughs> even though that might, you know, um, in, you know, be inclusive of, you know, 4 million different job titles yep. and represent 50%, 80% of the working economy. Well, and it's amazing how long that, you know, it sounds kind of funny when you describe it, like, okay, that's like something, you know, kindergartners. It's amazing how long that concept persists. I mean, I talk to people even who are in or graduating from college and it hasn't gotten much more complex in their mind. You say, what are you interested in? What are you looking for? Uh, they know basically sales, marketing. They usually don't know what marketing actually is uh, or yeah. all the different things that could be. And maybe like some hard skills, like, you know, an engineer or something like that, but it's basically sales marketing, or they'll say management. I want to be in management. I have strengths in leadership. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? Like everything requires management. Like, you know, mm -hmm. are you talking about managing your own yeah. time? Are you talking about managing your checkbook? Are you talking about managing employees at a business? Are you talking, but it's, it's, you really can't, you can't describe through writing or spoken word Here's what marketing is. You have to engage with it and be around it and see all of the different opportunities and many of which don't even exist yet or just don't have titles. I mean, I don't, most of the people that work with the people that work for me at Praxis, for example, 
there's no title that accurately describes or captures what they do or even what industry they're in. You just have to kind of see it and see the opportunity. So that lack of exposure is, I think, can be really limiting. Yeah. And now, now I get so much of it. Like I'm, I'm constantly expect every time I get a new client or uh, a new project, it's like, I have to look at my calendar and at like four o'clock today, I'll have to talk to someone who manages a fleet of porta potties. And then tomorrow it'll be, I'll, I'll have to talk to a guy who uh, does analytics for mining safety. And then the next time it's someone who uh, produces cell phones and uh, here's someone who who does uniform leasing. Here's here's someone who uh, runs those little cafeterias in in corporate um, environments. You know, there's all the all these different businesses that you wouldn't even think exist. You know, here's someone who who leases construction equipment. And so kids, you know, kids don't see this. Now, I think if I had a time machine, and or even just got to write a time machine letter to 16 year old Jeff and say, well, when when you're in your 40s, you're gonna have like um, you're going to work out of your, you know, relatively nice house. You're only going to work a few hours a week. Uh, you're going to, you're going to make uh, a nice big six figure salary. Um, and you're going to mostly oversee people who are drawing pictures and writing stories. I mean, that would, that would have been sounded pretty sweet to me. <laughs> it's amazing. It's one thing that I, you know, I, I like to try to remind young people who are stressing about, and if they think they have to pick the one right path and it's like, whatever you'll be doing in 20 years, it probably doesn't exist yet. And if it does, I probably wouldn't be able to describe it to you in a way that makes sense, you know, or you wouldn't be mm -hmm. able to understand it until you sort of, until you sort of get there. Well, so let's talk about this two years ago when, okay, you were already running your business. You were living in Boston, your kids were in school and you had this, as you said, this, this self-improvement project, this idea to become a different version of yourself. What motivated that? Do you think that was building for a long time? And then what were the immediate steps that you took after this, this sort of moment? Yeah, I, I, I'm not, I don't quite remember why I thought they'd all should be changed at the exact same time, <laughs> but all of a sudden the changes all sort of came up individually and I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm, I'm looking to take like quite a pivot here. Hmm. And so maybe it is like a whole new direction. And there was a little bit of Oh boy! Like I don't want to call it fortuitous timing because it involved my mom dying, mm. but um, it all sort of happened right when my mom was on the cancer trajectory to die. Uh, but it was also the same time that we had our house on the market. It was also the same time that I was doing intense research on home education, mm. and so it wasn't a singular vision, but it did. It was like, if I'm going to take a bunch of risk, let's just do it all together. And, and see what happens, which actually sounds like a terrible plan in hindsight. You should probably just take one risk on that time. <laughs> or, or maybe not. I mean, maybe if you know that, if you know that you want to take some risks, but you know, you're going to have to fight your own habits. If there's a window where you're more open than normal, maybe that's a good time to try a lot of things at once. I don't know. So, yeah. Well, another, I think another thing is, is when, when you take these big changes, to make yourself sort of obligation free or to endeavor to, to either make more money or work less or, or take your kids out of school is that you, you're comparatively, you look, you look insane compared to normal people. Mm -hmm. And myself, I think most people would think this as well. I myself wasn't immune to that bias. So when I was looking at what future Jeff would look like, it's like, 
well, he looks insane. Mm-hmm. He looks like a crazy person to think that uh, he doesn't have to work like everybody else, that his kids don't have to go to school, that he can live 10 months out of the year in shorts and flip-flops <laughs> and a t-shirt. It's somewhere beautiful. I'm trying to push water. it to 11 and a half months with <laughs> the flip-flops. It gets a little little cold on the toes. Um, you know, one thing you said, you've, you've said it a few times, the word obligation. And what, what specifically about a sense of obligation or, or maybe where the obligation comes from, whether it's one that you've chosen or one that you've sort of fallen into without thinking about it, um, how big a role has the concept of trying to free yourself from obligation played in this transformation? Oh, it's huge. And by the way, this is uh, my next podcast that I'm doing is on this topic. And also I, I sort of go through that same uh, life path that we just discussed. So it's going to be a bit of repeat for my, my 30 listeners. This will be the good warm up for you. So, yeah. So obviously there's, there's extrinsic obligation that we, we can't avoid such as dying, having to feed ourselves, uh, having to pay taxes. And so those we, we either can't worry about or we try to minimize. Um, you know, there's some other, other perceived obligations that maybe we uh, have to do with the political sphere or with religion, again, that we can't, we can't affect at all. So it's almost pointless. Uh, it's fun to talk about ending the Federal Reserve or the military industrial complex as being sort of people who are obligating us to pay for them, but we can't really do that. Then there's personal or intrinsic obligation that comes from like an unnatural place, in my opinion. And I think it has a lot to do with schooling. So coming out of college, I had this tremendous obligation to to please my dad's aesthetic for what a good job looked like. I had my own obligation to conform to, to a corporate world and to be invited to and be accepted within the corporate world. Uh, when the kids came along, the obligation to send them to school was automatic. It was unthought. So all of these things are like bad obligations mm. that come from inside, but I think they're really probably a product of our schooling for the most part. Mm. And then secondly, maybe parenting and, and, and culture, that we have these automatic things that we have to work a certain many hours a week. You know, We have to conform to the school. We have to do these obligations. And they're really sort of bad for you. And they're really fr- they can be very frustrating and they can make you unfree. And it's not until you can step outside and begin saying which of these are the ones that I want, because maybe there are there's good you know when you when you have children that's a, a huge obligation that you're setting yourself up for. When you start a company, uh, you start a podcast, whatever these are obligations that are sort of intrinsically motivated but can be very positive. Yeah. And now, so no, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. So I, I just um, once I sort of step outside and look at these obligations in sort of a state of ignorance. Uh, where you sort of look beyond whatever you've been indoctrinated or trained to believe, then they, they sort of change in nature and then you can begin dealing with them. Yeah. I, I, the, the areas where it's a big challenge for me are not so much the one, the extrinsic obligations. Cause once you, once you identify those, you can see pretty quickly that, um, okay, let me free myself from these. Now it might be a hard process to do it, but the ones that are, chosen, that's where you can sometimes get into a weird place. So, um, for instance, with writing, so I, I try to blog every day, uh, or the podcasting, I have a podcast, uh, episode every week. 
And once you sort of say, this is a new thing I'm going to do, I'm going to launch a podcast and I'm going to do this weekly and you're doing it and you're enjoying it. Then you get this feedback loop where you'll have people say, oh, I like your podcast and oh, I like it when you do this. And pretty soon you're taking that feedback and you want to say, oh, good, I could people like this. I'll do a little more of that. Or, oh, I need to make sure I don't miss a week. Um, it's a really fine line between I want to make sure I don't miss a week because I know I'm going to be a happier person if I stick to the schedule I've set for myself. And, oh, no, I've got to do it this week because mm -hmm. people are asking and, and taking feedback from the market, I mean, especially if you're trying to sell something, if you're in a business, it's especially important, but in saying, what is, what is the market wanting? How can I adapt to that feedback is one thing. It can be valuable information, but it's a really fine line. It's easy to all of a sudden start writing or podcasting for other people and all the joy is gone from it. And that, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and then there's this temptation to be like, well, screw everyone. I'm not doing this for anyone. And then you're one of those people that starts a project and stops it all the time. And it can be, maybe you say it's because you want to be free, but really it's because you're afraid that other people are going to stop liking it or, oh no, you're branded as this type of guy and now you are interested in something else and you're afraid to publicly shift focus or it's just, it's, it gets really complex. How do you deal with that kind of where it is something you've chosen, but it starts to quickly slip into something that you're doing for some, someone else? Yeah. So that's, 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 um, that's fascinating because Especially blog uh, blogging and podcasting uh, re require recency mm -hmm. um, to be relevant. In fact, I was just on a call with a client who we're we're, we're going to redo his website. He's really embarrassed because he started a blog two years ago and then only got a couple entries and then stopped. And it was he was genuinely embarrassed that he didn't come up with you know he didn't keep up with it and then said he just hates writing so much that he he just couldn't bear to do it. And I'm like, well, if we stop calling this a blog, we'll call this perspective. Then it doesn't matter how recent they are or how often they come out. Um, now, I still have pangs of guilt that I haven't produced music since 2009 uh, or a new painting after thinking that was my calling, you know, thinking that was such a, you know, a, a solid part of my identity. Do, do you think that guilt is because you're not being true to yourself or is it because you're not being true to an old version of yourself that you no longer care about? Yeah, I think it's the latter. Yeah, and that, that doesn't mean that I, I won't write something else in the future that I've I've you know forgotten how to write music. So now, as soon as you if, write music, I'll be like, Jeff, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. You don't <laughs> have to be that guy. <laughs> yeah, no, I tried writing a song this year, and it really uh, came out stinky. Um, it was just absolutely boring. But you know, I, I'm right now. I'm I'm instead of doing music, I'm doing a podcast. I've, I've written a book this year, and I'm raising three young children. Um, which is is just sort of a different part. And I think when when all my kids get into late latency, then my hobbies will shift again. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, have, I have a question for you. Yeah, because I was listening to one of your podcasts where you talk about writing every day, and you said it gives you you do it before. I think you said to do it before email or breakfast, and it gives you a sense of being productive, regardless of how the day turns out. Mm -hmm. And then Jeff Jeffrey Tucker on your podcast had the exact same. Uh, same thing. He likes to get up early, write first thing, so he feels productive. Now, is the sense of feeling productive or the necessity to feel productive, is that, one, is that an obligation or not? And two, where does it come from? Is it is it part of nature or is it taught to us or is it mm. somehow, is there some kind of fear of, of not being productive? Yeah. Or is I, there some kind of joy of being productive? What, what, what's your feelings on that? Yeah, I would say for me, I don't know if I'm willing to say universally, although 
Although I might, I might be willing to say on some level, humans, humans only find fulfillment if they are overcoming some form of challenge or uh, progressing based on whatever their own definition is of progress in some way, which implies change and which implies sort of overcoming some kind of challenge. I, I don't know how, how far I'm willing to go on that. Um, well, do you think it's biological? I mean, like, uh, yeah, I think a, I, I a caveman think it would have had him been productive. I think eat, it might be hardwired. Right? So actually, I have a blog post called the hunt to meat ratio, a really short one. But it's it's mm -hmm. basically exploring this concept of there are people who only hunt for the meat. They hunt because they want the meat. They need it to survive. And we're programmed to want to sort of overcome challenges or, or, or produce, uh, because if we don't produce, we will quite literally die. But then there's another element where production in and of itself, some people would hunt, even if they already had plenty of meat just for the thrill of it, they enjoy the hunt as like its own activity or challenge. Um, and there's that component. And I think it varies in different people. And I don't think one is morally superior to another by any means, but for me personally with writing, it's primarily because I want to be a productive person. I want to every, end every day a slightly better version of myself than I started and better based on my own definition, the person that I would like to be that I envision. Um, I want to move a little bit closer towards that every day. And the reason I write every day, it's because it's something completely tangible within my control at my current level of skill set. There's nothing that can stop me from at least doing that. So if I do nothing else but that, I've at least improved a tiny bit that day because I made myself do the practice of getting words out onto paper. And so for me, it's more about that um, than it just, it's because I have other goals. That's why writing becomes valuable to me because it helps me sort of get into that productivity mode and it makes me more creative. The more I create, the more ideas I have. I like creating things. That's when I'm happiest. Um, so it's kind of, it's a selfish thing. It's for my own sort of psychic mm -hmm. benefit now, as well as getting me towards my longer term goals. But I don't, I don't know that I would say like anyone has to, um, you know, has to seek that. I don't know. What, what's your take? Cause you, you've written about the work identity problem, which can sometimes tie into this, this idea. A lot of people have that, like you have to love your work somehow. Um, and I don't, I don't believe that that's, that's true, but what, what are your, what are your thoughts on this, this drive to be productive? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of struggling with it, especially after starting the, the blog and the podcast. And I, I, I gave myself a very lenient schedule. Um, which I don't have to follow. It's it's only up to me. I, I was just going to pick, uh, get one podcast done per month, shoot for twelve per year. And now you're wondering if you've if you've all the obligation you work so hard to un, to remove from your life. You're wondering if you're slowly bringing it back in. Yeah, yeah. By setting up an arbitrary schedule. Yeah. And uh, an arbitrary task, and and I don't always enjoy the process either. So sometimes I'm like, well, you know, like uh, f this, I'm going to go. Um, watch, you know, the, the football channel and yeah. lay in bed because I totally can, cause yeah. I don't have any other, cause I already, I already cleared my plate from work and, and stuff like that. And so there's a while I was, even before I started the, the blogging and podcasting as a hobby, uh, I sort of felt like I was floating, uh, after, after version, you know, five, Jeff Till 5.0. Yeah. Where, uh, it's like, wow, I, you know, I could be there on a Sunday or a Monday afternoon and have absolutely nothing to do. And I like, I'm like, I over succeeded somehow in, <laughs> in, in removing all these obligations. Um, so did you feel a little bit aimless? Like, 
you needed yeah. some new challenge. Yeah. See, and I wonder like if that's personality or if that's just hardwired into every human. But so I, but I, I would love to be able to guiltlessly drop the, um, the feeling that I'm not being productive at given times. Mm. Um, and I, I, I don't think I've gotten there yet. So I, I still feel like some of the desire to be productive is either trained or extrinsically motivated yeah. or taught. Yeah, maybe maybe I'll put it this way because one thing I have worked really hard on the last probably five years before I launched Praxis, um, I was doing essentially sales work. I was doing fundraising and I got pretty good at it and I was very autonomous managing my own schedule. So there would be seasons where I was on the road all the time, doing a lot of meetings, working a lot of hours, uh, you know, doing fundraising. And there were seasons where a lot of the the donors like August, December, nobody's really around. There are no meetings to be had. And even, you know, it took me a while to transition my thinking, even though I had not been an hourly employee for many, many years, this hourly mentality that if you're not doing what appears to be work or doing something that's Mm -hmm. like somewhat challenging or at least time consuming, or if an outside observer saw you, they would say, oh yeah, he's working. If you're not doing that, you know, at least whatever, 50, 60 hours a week, then you are slacking. And I had to transition my mindset because if you average it out over the year, uh, I was definitely working a lot, but there were, there were seasons where there would be like not hardly anything going on. And, you know, I could do more research and prospecting and I would do some of that, but I had this horrible sense of like guilt and I had to step back and say, what are my goals in this role? How much money am I bringing in? How much will I bring in this quarter, this year? I'm hitting everything as I should be. I'm, I'm producing what I want to be producing and more. So it doesn't matter how I use every minute of time. I had to like free myself from that feeling. If it's attached to a goal, if I know I'm, I'm sitting around not doing something and if I were doing something, it would get me closer to a goal that I have, then I think it's not necessarily a bad itch. But if it's just, I don't even have a goal right now, I just feel mm-hmm. like yeah. bad for not having one. You know what I mean? I don't know. It's like then you, then no. you don't have genuine leisure. Yeah. So, I, no, I totally understand it. And the thing is, is that I don't have an answer for it. That's. <laughs> I brought you on here for answers, Jack. <laughs> no, that's, I mean, that's sort of, um, I was even just trying to think of if there could be sort of like obligation management software. If Is there is there an app for that? Ooh. That, um would allow you to, it, it's not, it wouldn't be like a to-do list. Yeah. Cause there, there obviously those are, uh, there's plenty of those. It's almost like a prompt with questions. Like, what are you doing right now? Uh, why are you doing it? Do you <laughs> have to, are you happy? Uh, you know, like, I don't yeah, know. it would have to be like a, a framework for, or a tool for assessing the, the, both the reasons and the, uh, the relatively pain pleasure of the obligation, its necessity and its origin. And then it would have to be a second part of the tool, which would help you explain what to do with it. Like, do I learn how to do I figure out how to mitigate this? Mm. Do I go ahead and do it? And it, it almost be it almost might make crossover into some productivity management type. I, I don't have a clear vision. Yeah, just yeah. sort of the the name came out of my mouth well, there's uh, a couple days ago, and I was sort of like, huh, this you know this is the this is the problem I'm trying to solve. But well, there's another phenomenon that I find interesting that like, and again, I don't even know if it's a bad thing, but when you be when you start to sort of act entrepreneurially or train yourself to see opportunities and act on them it changes the way that you enjoy let's say hobbies i mean imagine if i said you know what i've always been interested in cooking i've never taken the time to do it i'm going to start to watch some videos start to teach myself cutting techniques start to learn to cook 
I know myself well enough at this point to know that probably a couple months in, I would already be focusing less on just the act of me cooking as an enjoyable experience and be thinking about the cooking industry and like, oh my gosh, the way that I learned this, what if you could do it this other way? What, and and that's that's fun and I love that, but I almost wonder like, am I incapable of having hobbies at this point? <laughs> because I'm mm-hmm. always trying to parlay them into some broader higher level, you know, concept or opportunity or, or I don't know, it's, it's interesting. And that's, that's where, you know, creativity begets creativity. I like that. Um, but I wonder if it like ruins you forever as just a consumer of, of something enjoyable. <laughs> Not that I don't, I love, enjoy, I mean, I watch football, I enjoy it. Um, you know, I spin off theories about whatever new sport I'm going to invent, but, uh, you know, in reality, I'm not going to act on that. It, it's interesting. Yeah. No. Well, even, even taking that turn to be, um, to be a producer of ideas, like, uh, I, I wasn't sure what license I need to be not just a consumer of, of, of ideas like the yeah. ones we're talking about, but all of a sudden do I, do I have the authority or the permission to, to be a producer of ideas, which, um, that in itself is kind of a, can be an intimidating question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, um, we're going to wrap up here and we didn't even get to one of the main things that I thought, okay, mostly we're going to talk about unschooling, but we'll explore some of Jeff's stuff as well. We didn't even get to unschooling, uh, you unschooling your children, what that's like. We'll have to, we can do that in another episode, but your book rise above school is phenomenal. And it has sort of a complete case for home education, as well as some of your own, um, you know, mental, the things you wrestled with going from schooling your kids to unschooling them a little bit about what it's like day to day, a lot of great stuff in there and check out 500 years.org for that as well. But, but today's theme really, it seems like was about personal freedom, how to be Mm -hmm. a free person. So taking that as a theme, if I said, Jeff, give me a few thoughts on how to be a free person. What's the most important stuff to focus on things that you can actually change, which are all personal. That's, that's uh, I mean, that's probably the, the shortest way I can say it. Yeah. So that's, that's going to be job, family, uh, you know, school, home mindset, mindset. You know, yeah. States and, and difficulties like, yeah, I, the, the day I turned off the news for good. Um, and I used to be able to say, stop watching the news, but these days I don't know if that many people get their news from the, the TV anyway, but the day I did that for good was like the beginning of my personal emancipation <laughs> because all the focus was on things that irritated me that were out of my control. And all of a sudden when the news is off, you're like, okay, what am I going to occupy my mind with today? Uh, there's, there's no, it's not being full of things about, you know, politicians saying this or that or shooting somewhere or house fires or whatever, things that I can't control. Now all of a sudden your mind starts to to drift towards the things that that you can. So that's a great that's a great summary. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, check out 500years.org. You can find all sorts of great stuff uh, from Jeff there, and um, hopefully we can we can get you back on to talk a little bit more in depth about unschooling specifically. Yeah, that would be great. Thanks, Isaac. You bet.